Well, good day, church. Welcome to another week of our sermon series in the book of Philippians. Let me invite you to keep your Bibles open. Uh, and let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word read to us. And so now as it is preached and applied, would you speak by your word and spirit to move and to challenge, uh, to encourage, and to allow us to savor the sweetness of your grace. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as you leave your Bibles open to Philippians 1 verse 18 to 30, um, I like to be really open and honest about one of the things I really struggle with when it comes to being a pastor. Uh, You see, one of the tasks that we have as pastors is to evangelize, right? Tell people about Jesus, invite them to trust in Him. That's not the only thing we do, but it's a critical component of what we do. It's how the church grows. Uh, Healthy church growth doesn't come from other Christians joining our church, though you're very welcome if you're here. Uh, But healthy church growth comes from unbelievers finding hope in Jesus, trusting in Him, and experiencing the new life and the eternal life that He brings. It also comes as Christian parents raise their children uh, to know and love Jesus. But let me tell you what I struggle with. I struggle with the fact that because evangelism is so tied with church growth, it's very easy for pastors or preachers to water down or dilute our evangelistic message in order to see more growth. Maybe we see this in other sectors. You can imagine what it's like, right? Ah, we have a housing crisis in Australia, right? Uh, So let's encourage as much building as possible, even if it means watering down or turning a blind eye to building codes and regulations. We have a financial crisis, uh, so let's lend out money as easily as possible, even if we're not sure if the borrowers can make their repayments. Uh, We have an environmental crisis, right? So let's lower the bar of our emission standards, even if it means it will negatively impact our environment. Watering down standards, right? Likewise, it's actually very easy to water things down or lower the standards of the Christian faith and maybe hide theological clauses in the fine print so that we can accomplish better outcomes, so that more people will fill our churches. I mean, that's true, isn't it? The average size of an Australian church is about 40 people, and you've got buildings that can seat 100 to 200 people. As, as a preacher, like I'm telling you, if I look out into a hall that can, that can sit 100 to 200, and I see only a few, oh, the temptation will be so great to do whatever is possible to fill the room, right? Maybe we could just simplify the message of the gospel, even if it means that people aren't getting the full picture of what it means to follow Jesus. It may sound crazy to you that preachers would do this, but it does happen. And sometimes, I must confess, preachers can sound like a cheap salesman. Come believe in Jesus. It's going to be great. No drawbacks, only benefits. Register by the end of February, Ryan. But Grace Point, this is in stark contrast to what the Bible teaches about the gospel, no? Uh, very Very few preachers today, myself included, Dare to embrace the full extent of the Bible's tone and tenor when it comes to telling people about what it means to follow Jesus. And as a result, what we find a little bit of today, maybe a bit too much of, is false Christianity. People who think they're Christians but actually have no true and professing faith. Or what we find is shallow Christianity. 
People who profess to know, love, and serve Jesus, but do not have the depth, and so they do not have the joy that comes from intimacy with Jesus. It's so easy to hide things in the fine print. There's a fear that people can't stomach what it means to truly follow Jesus. There's a concern that if we're too honest, then no one will join our churches. That's a little silly, isn't it? It's pretending like God needs our help to have people saved. It's as if God needs us to hide His truth in the fine print. Today, I'm going to highlight, make bold, and italicize an aspect of the gospel that's often hidden in the fine print. Because what's in the fine print, according to the Apostle Paul, is actually what produces true and lasting joy. As we unpack today's passage, what we'll hopefully see is that the gospel will cost us everything. The gospel will cost us everything. As you've heard from the last few weeks, it could cost you your reputation, maybe your relationships, maybe your security. Today in our passage, we see it could even cost you your life. Now, that's not to say that we need to give these things up in order to be saved. No, not at all. Salvation and redemption is God's gift to us. He's taken the first step. He has decided out of His great love to save us. But church, what we have to realize is that there are consequences to this repentance and reorientation. The gospel will cost us everything. And yet, as we work our way through today's passage, I hope we also see that while the gospel will cost us everything, it also gives us everything. It calls on us to give up the easy life in exchange for eternal life. So let's look beyond the cheap cell message that is common in evangelism today. Come to point one with me as we explore the full message of the gospel by looking at the fine print of the gospel. Now, I'm not sure uh, when you first heard the gospel, but I'm confident that you were told, uh, as Stephen has hopefully done through the catechism, all of us are sinners And because of that, all of us are separated from God and are worthy of His judgment and condemnation. But the good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus came to pay the price for our sins, living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, so that you and I can have eternal life. So all we have to do is to trust in Jesus for forgiveness and live under His rule. It's all because of God's grace, all mercy. Maybe that's what you heard. There are two ways to live, right? Now, is that the gospel? Absolutely. It communicates the essential message of the gospel. No doubt about it. But the trouble with this is not what is said, but what is not said. Because you see, when Jesus personally invited people to trust and follow him, he actually includes the following very important words. It's in Matthew 16, verse 24 to 26. It's in your Bibles, right? Here is Jesus' words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, this is stunning, isn't it? Because here is Jesus' very own words. We see here 
that trusting and following Jesus is not a modest upgrade to an already amazing life. It's not just, just believe and things will be better than what it already is. It's a complete reorientation. It changes everything, right? I mean, look at that passage with me. It speaks of denying oneself, saying no to our own sinful passions and desires. It speaks of taking up one's cross and following him. The cross, as you know, is a symbol of death. This year is a call to die to ourselves and make much of Jesus instead. That's why verse 25, 26 in Matthew makes sense, right? Is this the gospel that you heard when someone shared it with you? I hope so. Because church, this is what Paul is building on here in Philippians 1 verse 18 to 30. Read Philippians 1 verse 29 with me. Listen to what he says. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, so so we get that, but also to suffer for him. Underline those words, but also to suffer for him. Here is the fine print of the Christian faith. You will suffer for following Jesus. Things will be hard. There may be no fame and fortune. It is a path of humility and cross-shaped sacrifice. This is part and parcel of following Jesus. It's not just come to Jesus and there'll be rainbows and butterflies. In the words of Paul, in the words of Jesus, it says here, hey, as you believe in him, you will likely suffer for him. But here's a clarifying question. What kind of suffering are we talking about here? I think we can agree that there are at least two kinds of suffering in life. The first kind is what you could call a general suffering, the kind that everyone experiences, right? The, the looming threat of death, the loss of a loved one, the crushing weight of unemployment, the fracturing of a marriage. These are non-specific, right? Christians experience it just as non-Christians do. These are experiences of living in an imperfect, broken, and fractured world. But you see, this is not the category of suffering that Paul is speaking of here. Nor is it the category of suffering that Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 16. Rather, the sort of suffering that Jesus and Paul speaks of is a second kind of suffering, a specific suffering. It's the experience of suffering that directly results from following Jesus. It comes from directly listening and obeying His Word and seeking to live in His way. A specific suffering. It looks like at least three things. Let me put some flesh on this. Look at point 1A with me. In verse 18, Paul continues on his theme of rejoicing. Look at your Bibles with me. He says, with confidence that nothing can stop the advancement of the gospel. Even the fact that he's in jail cannot stop the spread of this good news. But then come to verses 19 to 26 with me, specifically verses 20. Here, as you read, Paul is acutely aware of the threat of death because of his faithfulness to the gospel. In verse 20, he speaks of an expectation and hope that Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by, what's that word? Death. You see, Paul knows that his work of bringing the gospel to the nations will cost him his life. Yet here, the Apostle Paul exhibits a sort of counterintuitive response to death. He lacks the sort of fear 
that is commonly associated with the looming threat of death. He almost displays, I mean, read, read the words, try to imagine the tone. There's almost a sort of carelessness with his own life. And yet a careful reading of the passage shows us it's not carelessness. It's confidence. Confidence in God's sovereign purpose that whatever happens will ultimately happen for God's glory. But it's also a confidence in the eternal life that is granted by the grace of God. And so what we observe here is that faithfulness to the gospel was going to cost the Apostle Paul's life. But here's the thing. Read verses 29 to 30 with me. Zoom in on that. Paul tells us that this experience was not going to be unique to him. He's saying that the rest of the Philippian church may experience the very same thing. He says, since you are going through the same struggle. Now, Grace Point, if you're familiar with the history of the church, you'll know that the Apostle Paul was right. Paul wasn't the first person to die for the cause of Christ, nor was he the last Generations of Christians, even after the church in Philippi, followed in this footsteps of dying for their faith in the hands of oppressors. Throughout history, Christians have been killed because pledging allegiance to Jesus means that we cannot compromise on what the Bible says is right and true. So that even if governments threaten and say, abandon the gospel or die, Christians often choose the latter. Christians have been killed because pledging allegiance to Jesus means we serve only one king. It doesn't mean we deny the rule of our earthly rulers, no. But if our earthly rulers want to take the seat of ultimate authority over our lives, we say we bow only to Jesus, even if it costs us our lives. But of course, the history of the church shows us that Christians have also been killed because they've been used as scapegoats and blamed for things they did not do. But you see, Grace Point, listen, this is not just historic. I'm not just giving you a history on the church. Today, Christians in different parts of the world continue to pay the ultimate price for faithfulness to Jesus. There's an organization called Open Doors. They have a website. It's fabulous, which tracks the experiences of Christians all around the world. Did you know that in North Korea, being discovered as a Christian can be a death sentence? Did you know that in Somalia, Christians risk being killed on the spot by Islamic extremists? Did you know that in Yemen, those who who denounce Islam and profess faith in Christ can be banished or be put to death? Now, many of us are stunned by this, right? Because it's just so foreign to us. Who would have thought? We live in a culture where it's odd to die for anything, let alone die for our faith in Jesus. Yet passages like this reminds us that what ought to be surprising is not that people die for their faith. What ought to be surprising is that people don't. The normal expectation is that Christians will suffer for Christ. Now, I understand that as I speak about this, this sounds so abstract for us here in Australia. Like, even if I give you that example, you're just like, yeah, I guess I get it, but not really, right? In God's kindness, we have legal and social mechanisms that protects Christians. We praise God for that, right? But what I think is more likely for us then here is not physical death, but what we can probably describe as social death. Come to point 1B with me, because another form of suffering that our passage also speaks of 
is the social cost of being faithful to Jesus. Verses 20 uses a very powerful phrase. You have verse 20 in front of you? Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. Underline that word ashamed. Shame is such a primal emotion. Shame arises when we've done something wrong, right? But it also arises when we feel like we're not approved, when we are not recognized, when our worth is not celebrated. It, shame is very tied up with our personal sense of identity and self-esteem, right? And let me ask you a question. Have you done something really silly in public before? Uh, maybe you walked around with your pants zipper open, right? Or your shirt inside out. Maybe you've worn mismatching shoes, I hope you realize that there is nothing fundamentally or morally wrong about any of those things. But you probably felt ashamed. Ashamed because you didn't conform to or live up to the social standards. Your actions weren't approved. You felt like your worth was diminished as a result, right? In contrast, have you ever felt honored? Maybe you won an award, you got a promotion, you were given Order of Australia. None of these things are fundamentally or morally right, yet you felt honored. You were recognized for your contribution, you felt approved as a person. Your worth wasn't exaggerated per se, it was just appropriately acknowledged. Here's the thing. There is a cost to following Jesus. Paul is alluding to the fact that you will risk feeling more ashamed than you will feel honored. Perhaps it's moments of embarrassment when people find out that you're a Christian. Really? Someone like you? So intelligent, but Christianity, isn't that really primitive? Have you, have you heard that before? Now perhaps your views will be dismissed because you are a Christian. They may say, oh, obviously you'll think that, like you're a Christian, right? You're probably just brainwashed by your priest or pastor. Maybe you will feel excluded or ostracized. We don't really like inviting this person along to our things. They're Christians. They're killjoys. We won't have as much of a good time with them around. If you haven't heard people say this to your face, maybe they're saying it behind your backs, right? Paul in verse 20 expresses expectation and hope that he will not be ashamed. But that's not because he thinks that people will suddenly think, that, oh, wow, he should be honored because of his courageous faith. Now, as we'll see in a moment, it's because he is confident that God will turn all of these tragedies for good. His imprisonment, the very thing that should have been shameful, right? Being locked up in chains. Paul, God, will use to proclaim the gospel. But this here doesn't diminish the biblical reality. and It doesn't diminish maybe even your own experience. I know some of you have felt this before. There is a social cost of shame when it comes to following Jesus. Hey, the gospel will cost you everything. But here's one more form of suffering. Verse 27 says this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the rest of the verse clarifies what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's standing firm in one's spirit. It is contending for the faith. It's staying strong in the face of persecution. That's what it means to stand worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, this verse is saying, live in such a way that points people into Jesus. 
So that when people look at our lives, right, as they observe you right there, and as they read the Bible, they will say, ah, yes, I totally understand why this Christian lives in this way. Hey, but church, listen in very closely. Are you ready? Can we just agree that this year in verse 27 is not easy? Can we agree? I know that the ordinary Christian experience is to read the words of Scripture and know that it is true and know that it brings life cognitively. But then, as we look at how the rest of the world lives, we see the appeal of it and our hearts are drawn by it. And part of us just wonders, I wonder if that could be true. But then as we look back at Christ and the gospel, we know this is right. We want to conform to the gospel. And then we look at the world again and we feel torn. There is sometimes a lingering part of us that wonders, what if the world is right? I mean, they seem to be doing so well. There's this feeling of being torn, right? Especially when we see perhaps some non-Christians who have it all together. When they look happier, when their successfuls are flourishing, when, when their relationships are flourishing, when they're more successful, they're living contrary to God's word, but things seem to be going so well for them. There's a part of us that wonders, hey, am I missing out? It is so hard to believe that God's way is right when things don't seem to be going right. Maybe you know, they speak of this internal struggle. It feels more pronounced, right? When the beauty and reward of God's way is not seen right away. And so, we read words like this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and we think, yes, I want to do that. I've been transformed by the Spirit of God to do that. But there's a part of us that says, that's really hard. If you're feeling that, I just want to assure you that this is the ordinary experience of sanctification. Growing to be more Christ-like. All of this is an invitation of faith, of trust. There will be days when you just think, man, if I could just lie, things would be easier. If I could just be with this person who's not my spouse, I'd be happier. If I could do things for myself without any regard of consequences, then I would be more satisfied. Listen, Christian, the question then is not, am I still a Christian if I think these things? The question is, will I keep running to Jesus for help when I'm tempted to believe in these lies? It's an internal struggle, and I don't want to deny that for one bit. To think that following Jesus will be devoid of these expressions of suffering is silly. If anything at all, the fact that you're struggling and wrestling with this rather than succumbing to them is a good sign of God's working grace in your life. The gospel, listen, will cost you everything. You will have to abandon the easy life. And you're probably thinking now, this sounds like the worst deal in the history of deals, right? Why would anyone opt in for suffering? As you come to point two with me, I'd like us to see that God in His grace and mercy has particular functions, particular purposes for suffering. It doesn't mean that God delights in suffering per se. 
because it is not God's original intent or design for Christians to suffer for their faith. In fact, the very presence of suffering, whether it's general suffering or specific suffering, is an intrusion and it is a reminder. Church suffering is an intrusion. It is not part of God's original good creation. It's a result of sin and the fall when humanity chose to rebel against God. And so we experience suffering as an intrusion on the good things in life. That's why no one naturally says, oh yes, I can't wait to suffer again. No, no one thinks that. When you listen to what we talked about earlier, right? The, the threat of death, social ostracism, personal struggle and wrestling with the faith. Every fiber of our being goes, no thank you, not interested, right? If you think that, I want you to know you are normal. That is a normal response. Suffering is an intrusion. An unwelcome guest who arrived at an inconvenient time to talk about inconvenient things and stay for longer than they're welcome. You know guests like that? Maybe they're sitting next to you, right? It's an intrusion. It's that slight misalignment of a frame on a wall. It's the sound of a dripping tap echoing in an empty room. It's that new scratch on a new car. Suffering disturbs what's good in life. And I stress this because as Christians, I think it's really important that we reject any notion that suffering is the reality of life and we just have to put up with it. No, we reject this. We reject suffering as that which is normal. We rebel against any sort of teaching that tells us that uh, you just got to lay back, close your eyes and take it to the chin because there's no way around suffering. It's just how it is. No, we insist that though suffering is ever present in our lives, suffering is not how God has designed the world to be. And you see, suffering is an intrusion that reminds us of the brokenness of this world. It's a painful reminder, isn't it? Every time we suffer for our faith, we are forced to reckon with the reality that this world in its current state is not our home. The threats of death, the social cost, the ongoing wrestle with God's way and our personal sinful desires, all of these things pierce through the illusions of life and reminds us that this world is imperfect. Because here's the reality, right? We all build fences and walls to shield ourselves from the reality of this world. But reality always breaks in. And church, this is why this is good for us, right? Because how often do we, even as Christians, buy into the message that heaven is already here on earth and it can be bought in the form of a dream home, dream job, dream spouse, dream car? And how often have we bought into that message only to be disappointed and shattered? Suffering intrudes on the goodness of life and reminds us that this world is not what it's meant to be. We have not arrived yet. That's one of the functions of suffering. But it's also good because it weans us from the fleeting and temporary pleasures of this world. Now, I use the word wean because I think it powerfully captures this theological dynamic. Uh, another way that the word wean is used is often in reference to a child and his or her mother's milk, right? Mothers speak of weaning their children. It means that they are slowly moving their child off of breast milk into something more solid. Now, when a child is being weaned, we are not saying that a mother's milk is no good. 
No. We're not saying that the mother's milk has no nutrition. We're not saying it's useless. Instead, we are saying that there will come a time when the mother's milk will not be sufficient to help a child grow. They need to move on to solid food. Likewise, when we speak of weaning off the fleeting and temporary pleasures of of this world, we are not saying that this world has nothing to offer. No, no, this world, though broken, is still beautiful, is still part of God's creation. Your experiences of happiness and joy, even in this life, they're not meaningless. But the things of this world often come at risk of becoming idols, even if they're good gifts by God. These pleasures, joys, and happiness, they're temporary, they're fleeting. And so our experience of suffering because of our faith weans us off of them. It protects us from thinking that the things we attain in this temporary world will bring us everlasting satisfaction. Suffering constantly pokes at us, reminding us this world is not our home. Constantly pokes at us, reminding us that we need to move on to something more solid. Each experience of suffering slowly chips away at our confidence in this broken world. More and more we say there are good things in this world, but they do not last forever. Suffering doesn't just wean us then, it also points us to eternity where good things never end. Read verse 21 with me. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This here is a one-line summary of what Paul is trying to say. If he lives, then he gets to continue deepening his joy by preaching the gospel, seeing the gospel advance as far as possible. But then he says if he dies, he gets to be with the Lord where the effects of a suffering-filled, broken world will be no more, and that is gain. Grace point. This sort of confidence is what God wants for us. To have a hope in Jesus that is resilient through the trials of life, that is stronger than the hardships that, fa- that we face, that shines even in the darkest of times. Don't you want to read this and say, oh, I just want this to be my words. To live is Christ. There's good that comes from that, but to die is gain. Ugh. And so God uses the experience of Christian suffering to deepen our hope in Jesus God is not content with us being comfortable with this life. God is not content with us being easily entertained by what our world has to offer. He offers something even more solid. And He sometimes uses the intrusive and painful experience of suffering to lift up our eyes so that we can long for and look forward to a joy that transcends time and space. So how do we live in light of that? Come to point three as we consider our firepower against suffering. Firstly, church, I want to invite and encourage us to welcome suffering as a temporary guest. Remember, we talked about how it's an intrusion, right? An unwelcome guest. Maybe our response, therefore, should be to welcome it as an act of God's grace. I mean, you remember the functions and purposes of suffering, no? Our suffering for the faith is designed to draw us closer to God. And so maybe rather than being annoyed, frustrated, or confused when we suffer for the faith, grace point, let's try to welcome it when it comes. 
Now, by welcome, listen closely, I don't mean that you have to necessarily go and seek it out. Rather, I mean anticipate suffering so that we are not surprised when it comes. To welcome is to have a posture of preparedness, right? You know what that's like. It's like knowing that you have guests visiting, but they didn't tell you when, right? They're saying, Sam, I'm going to come see you today. And you're like, today is 24 hours. When today? And they're like, today. And so you just sit there. You can't do anything. It's like delivery, right? We're coming soon. Here's a nine-hour time frame. I hope you don't have work, right? And so we anticipate, we welcome it. We're sitting close to the door, ready to answer whenever the doorbell rings. It's the same when you're experiencing maybe soft shame for your faith, ridicule for your profession of faith, dishonor because of your God. We welcome them. And we say, ah, yes, I've been anticipating this as I walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, and my Savior Christ, we welcome it. Is that your posture? But more than just welcoming, we also prepare for suffering ahead of time, right? This can look at least two things. Are you listening? Firstly, I want to invite you to consider, just think, imagine of the scenarios and circumstances where you know that you will most likely feel pressured for your faith. Just imagine, what, what, what could that look like? Is it at home when your parents keep asking you why you're constantly wasting time going to church? Is it at work when your colleagues throw shade or side remarks at you? Is it, is it when your peers are celebrating success or a lifestyle that is contrary to scripture, but it looks so appealing and you see that on social media and you go, oh man, like, is that, is that, is that real? I don't know. To prepare means to expect when these things may come and get ready to respond in a godly way. Yeah? And so secondly, I want to encourage you to prepare your soul for when suffering comes. Because it will. Do you remember when COVID lockdowns were a thing? Such a distant memory, right? One of the things that people did back then was stockpile. Remember that? Anyone still have canned food in their garage? I do, right? Canned food, frozen food, toilet paper. People were loading up, preparing for a time when shelves will be empty, shops will be closed, when you have to fend for yourself, right? I imagine like an apocalypse, right? Like exciting, not really. It was a terrible time, right? Let's agree that people went a little crazy during that time, okay? But let's also agree that there was something wise about that. There was something smart about that. You don't dig a well when you're thirsty. You do it before so that when you are thirsty, all you have to do is reach down. It's wise to prepare ahead of time. Likewise, the best time to prepare for suffering is not necessarily when you are in the midst of it, but when you are not in it. Church, if you are not experiencing that right now, then maybe this is the time to prepare. To prepare by, by forming a really rich and biblical theology of suffering. Recognizing here from our passage that in this broken world, suffering for our faith is inevitable if you want to be faithful to Jesus. Recognizing that though there is suffering, it's a gift from God for our sanctification. We recognize that it is difficult and painful. But we also recognize that the grace of God gives us strength to endure it. We recognize it could cost us everything. 
But God's grace also gives us everything now to eternal life. Church, we develop this right now. We treasure it in our hearts. We meditate on this deeply so that it becomes our instinct when we are tempted to doubt. It becomes muscle memory when we are pressured for our faith. It becomes what we default to when times get hard. We soak ourselves in it. We welcome it and we receive it with joy. But I also want us to link arms then with each other and face them together. And we talked about how we are all united in sin and united in salvation in Christ. We're also united in our suffering for Christ. If you remember, one of the themes of Philippians is partnering together in the gospel, right? And part of that partnering is facing the trials of suffering together. This is what the church is for. It's not a place to come on the weekends to pretend like our lives are great and then go back to our painful and miserable lives. It's not a place where we just hide and pretend and smile like things are okay. No, it's a place to come with our baggage and burdens and then sharing them with one another to lighten the load, to encourage and remind each other, hey, hey, following Jesus will cost us everything, but it's worth it, isn't it? It's a gift of grace to protect us from the world's shallow promises. It's a gift of grace to drive us more to the hope that God gives us through Christ. It will cost us everything, but it also gives us everything, right? We tell each other, we poke one another, right? Hey, hey, are you welcoming it? Are you preparing for it? We don't encourage each other to doubt. We encourage each other to trust. But here, as we apply what it tangibly means to link arms and face them together, right now, here's a point to ponder. Can I encourage you to think of a person in your life right now who is either currently going through suffering because of their faith or is vulnerable to suffer because of their faith? Either currently going through it or is vulnerable to it. Think of a person. I want to encourage you today to take a step forward and reach out to them and link arms with them. You see, when we think of linking arms, we often think, okay, who's going to link arms with me? We're just waiting for someone to approach us. And and you know what? That's a really good question. So, So think about that. But let me just ask you proactively, maybe you can ask yourself, who can I reach out to to link arms with? Listen, Is it someone you know who knows God's purpose for life, God's design for marriage and family, but still struggles with same-sex attraction, but is wanting to walk in God's way, but but is struggling with that? Is there someone in your life you, you know is in that category? Is it someone who's struggling with singleness, but, but he or she wants to marry in the Lord, but is finding it very difficult to find a suitable partner and just wrestling with contempt in their lives and is often tempted to run against the grain of God's design? Is it someone who is wrestling with whether or not they should stay in their current industry because it demands them to compromise on their values? Are there people whom you know are struggling with the faith and for the faith to whom you can reach out today and say, you are not alone. We are in this together. Do you know those words, you are not alone, is so powerful that Liverpool, the football club, used it as their motto, right? 
Someone who will say to us, I know the gospel will cost us everything, but let's remember that the gospel gives us everything. That's in the words of verse 20. Believe together, but also suffer together. Because we know that in God's grace and kindness, all of this is producing within us an incomparable joy. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. And we thank you for being so strikingly clear and honest about the reality of following you. To help us to see that this cost in reality is no cost at all because it's, it's a gift that protects us from the shallow and false promises of this world. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room some of whom who are currently struggling because of the faith. They're seeking to walk in, in the newness of life that Christ has given, but they are struggling. Our Lord and God, we ask that uh, this sermon would remind them that they're not crazy for this struggle, but there is true beauty and reward that comes from it, the joy, all-surpassing joy that Christ promises. For the rest of the church who for whom even maybe after this sermon, things are still quite abstract, would you at least just remind us and challenge us to prepare for it well, so that when the time comes, a posture of welcoming and a godly response will be instinctive. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.